Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. It's Maddie with another special episode of This Is X for X is for Podcast. Joining me today, I have, as always, the incomparable Kyle. Hello. And with us today, we have a couple of special guests. Everybody welcome Rod to the program. Hello. And as always, the comic canary herself, Miss Evelyn. Hello. And it's so great to have you guys back today. And before we continue our coverage of X of Swords or Ten of Swords, we're going to be moving over to something truly special today. We have a Giant Size X-Men tribute, a recreation of Giant Size X-Men number one with something like 25, 30 artists. It is truly something incredible. Um, The original Giant Size X-Men covered by story by Len Wein with art by Dave Cochran, letters by John Costanza, colors by Glynis Ween, and cover art by Gil Kane and Dave Cockrum. And here, as we see opening up on page one with a beautiful recreation of the cover by Alex Ross, we know this is going to be something truly special. But sound off, guys. What was your experience with Giant Size X-Men Tribute? I just loved it. I loved seeing all the different artists taking on the different pages, and it was just beautiful. It was really cool seeing all these different interpretations of Cockrum's art, but at the same time keeping all the words of Len Wein's story. So it, it was just kind of really special. You know, and it was, it was, there's something to be said about going back and covering this specific issue. Now that we're in the hox pox docks of it all, the era in which mutants live on Krakoa, to see the first appearance of Krakoa, the living island, Krakoa, the island that walks like a man in such an adversarial role must have been jarring for, for all of my current readers. Yeah, I mean, it definitely was. I was kind of, I, I haven't read the giant first giant size in a long time. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is really what happened before. <laughs> it really kind of shocked me because I kind of just like like left it out of my mind, kind of just absentee-minded because of all the things that are happening right now in Hots, Pox, and Docs. <laughs> I had forgotten that was his first appearance was in Giant Size X-Men. I had just totally forgot about it. So it was really interesting being able to read Hiroka's first appearance and seeing how it's transferred over now with Hawksbox. Now, does anybody have, because we could sit here and discuss Giant Size X-Men all day. I mean, the history of it, the the introduction of the second core team of mutants to the X-Men. But I would rather discuss the art today. And if anybody happens to have a favorite page or a favorite transition, a favorite team of artists, my favorite page i think was page three chris samney and matthew wilson doing nightcrawler fleeing from the villagers and i think that the transition for the next two pages that to marcus two and sunny go and then to see ohm i think that was some of the strongest transitional art in the book for me up until uh the the original meeting of nightcrawler and professor x but anybody else have a favorite i loved the storm ones I thought they were all very beautifully rendered and 
drawn, especially their colors. Uh, it just really drew me in with Storm's introduction and how they portray And I thought it was a really great homage to her original introduction. Yes, definitely page seven by Marguerite Savage. The the full splash Storm Goddess page is one for the books. My God. Oh yeah, I would say. I mean, she. Yeah, I would say the same thing. I might be kind of biased because y'all know I love Storm. Uh, she is my favorite. But I would say both pages. One that splash page and the one after that where she's when they said that she swept from the storm. I mean, the storm goddess away, and she's happy here. Only truly happy here among the elements. Like. I just love how that page is redone because she just looks so focused and just so free and just so like just above everyone because she was technically in that moment, not just like physically, but like mentally she was a goddess herself. Like she believed that she was a full on goddess at that moment. You know, and it isn't until Professor X tells her, you're not a goddess, you're a mutant. You know, how, how humbling must that be? And and frankly, if I thought myself to be of such an elevated status as a god or a goddess, I wouldn't take kindly to hearing that so well. So the fact that Storm was able to just be like, all right, I'll let that roll off. And yeah, I guess I'll join you. You know, it's shocking to say the least. Yeah, that's one of the things that I, I've always loved about the character or how they've written her that she's pretty pretty much understanding of a lot of things that happen in the world because of her like hardship of her life was so I mean she was a thief she was like abandoned like she she hasn't had the best life growing up so I feel like with everything that happened to her anything that happens in her adult life she can probably just it's like water off a duck's back she can get over it pretty quickly and she can roll with the punches so you think it's a testament to Storm's like strength of character? I have to agree with that as well. Um, it it definitely reflects her strength of being able to accept these changes of worldview just all of a sudden. So it's it's definitely a strength for her. My eye was immediately drawn to the second page of uh, John Proudstar's introduction. Just I, I just love the, the cartoony look that they took with that entire page. And even even with it being cartoony, you can you can see the emotion that is being expressed by by John Proudstar. And it just it really resonated with me a lot. You know, it's so funny you say that because, and I mean no disrespect by this, that was in, in a transitional sense my least favorite. Just because I think I think that Guru Hero did an excellent job, and I think that it is it is beautiful for the style that it is presented in. But then to transition right into chapter two with that super highlighty, hyper realized, painted Marx Brooks uh, splash of the new team, and then to go right into what's a little bit more classic. Uh, almost muted cell shade art by Chris Anka to lead off that chapter. That transition for me was just a little strange, but but it is it is the most that second John Proudstar page is probably the most dynamic and different piece of art to grace this book. I have to agree. That's what I was gonna say exactly. I love the cartoony aspect of it I feel like it conveys a lot of emotion really well but the transition from the first page to the second page was just a little jarring and then like you said to the next chapter with the hyper realization it just felt like it was slightly out of place even though I loved it 
the transition itself was jarring, like you said. Yeah, and speaking of that transition, for me, I I personally found that hyper-realistic, super shiny uh, beginning of chapter two to be off-putting for me. It was, I don't know, it just, I'm not a big fan of that hyper-realistic look. And oh, and understandably, it is it is a very specific cup of tea. How about you, Rod? You got a least favorite transition of art? Mine was I and I I love this art, but I feel like it doesn't fit as much with the whole book and the transition. But it's the one where it says, um, "With almost indestructible force, Lauren's magnetic energy erupts downward through five miles of ocean." And it's like Rakoa is saying, "Like what is happening to us and all this." And it just, I feel like it's, it's when they're all like kind of leaving the island before, right before the island like sprouts up in the ocean, like lifts up. And I just feel like it's so hyper realistic, like more than any other page in the book. It's just kind of out of place. And I like the art a lot. It's just kind of jarring because it's just like, whoa, these look like real people now. And then it's like back to like more cartoon based skins. I'm I'm so surprised to see that that art was done by Mike Del Mundo because that is not an art style. That is not what I most closely associate with Mike Del Mundo. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. No, I definitely understand that. I can see how that that is a point that a point of contention uh in this book i definitely can understand that yeah i mean i feel like it goes along with the one that y'all kind of talked about it's just like two art pieces that are good in their own right but put in a story i feel like they kind of make the story a little imbalanced between the pages because they don't really um parallel with the other pages as much now in looking at the team that we have here assembled for giant size x-men number one you've got wolverine Storm, Nightcrawler, Banshee, Sunfire, Thunderbird, Colossus. So many characters that would would become mainstays for so many years to come. But in looking at the team, there's definitely one or two outliers to that motif. There, there are definitely a few that have not gotten their fair share. So I would love to hear everybody's, um, everybody's opinion on this. Who got the worst luck over the years, Sunfire or John Proudstar? John Proudstar, definitely. I mean, he... John. Yeah. I mean, even even though Sunfire left the team pretty quickly, he at least still had the ability to make uh, appearances, whereas they killed off John Proudstar and he's never been resurrected. Mm, a very good point. A very good point that renders this question a little moot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would... I would definitely agree, because, I mean, at least Sunfire, too, he's like the protector of Japan. They gave him this big pedestal and this great honor, and John Proudstar, they're just like, well, he's dead. So, <laughs> like, it's definitely, like, definitely, like, a, a unbalance there. Just, I mean, I don't know how you could pick anybody else other than Proudstar. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that, although... You know, to to the defense of somebody like myself that might say Sunfire, I will say that there is a tremendous need for an expansion of a of a international Marvel cast of characters. I do think that we should be highlighting and showcasing not just heroes of different creeds and origins and nationalities, but heroes in their native lands of oh. different creeds and origins and nationalities. I think there's definitely definitely high time for for some 
Sunfire to lead a very Asian-centric book. You know? Oh, definitely. I would definitely agree with that. I would love that. Like his own form of um, Agents of Atlas, but with mutants. Oh, yeah. Oh, it'd be so cool. Oh, it'd be so cool. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to This is X of Swords. We're here today to talk about Giant Size X-Men Tribute. I'm Nico. And I'm Arturo. I'm Josh. I'm Nathan. And I'm Jonah, and we hope you survive this experience. Okay, so I need to start. I need to rewind. Josh, Arturo, and Nathan, like, it has been such a pleasure bringing you guys along for this journey and having you here. And, like, you know, now we are, you know, this Ten of Swords, and we are this driving thing. And I can't help but feel bad because Jonah has discussed this issue seven times. I'm not kidding. I checked. I checked in our in our in our history. We have talked giant size X-Men seven times. There is nothing left for Jonah or I to say about this fucking story as it exists in the magical vacuum of Len Wein's 1975 mono voice. Guys, I want to know before we start talking about the art and the way it has changed in terms of a cultural perception of Krakoa. What do you guys think about giant size X-Men, the kickoff that kicked all the kickoffs off? I mean, Epic doesn't even capture it. You know, this this uh, this was only the second time, I'll admit this, this is the only the second time that I've actually read the story. The first time was when I signed up for Marvel Unlimited. It seemed like, well, now's a good opportunity. If not now, when? <laughs> if not now, when, right? Like, that's that's why that resource exists. And uh, man, it, it's incredible. I love, I love so much that this is where Jonathan Hickman went back to and what he has created, this completely whole new paradigm. But he went back to this. This is just like the core of the X-Men, you know? I mean, reading and seeing Kurt trying to escape a mob, like how many times have you seen that story told in different ways? And then reading it here, it's like, no, this is, this is where that all started. And you know, on that note for one second, it's why I've always resented the introduction of Nightcrawler into what is now known as the X-Men Legacy films. Recently, Disney rebranded all of the ended canon movies as Marvel Legacy films, and they are part of a separate they're multiverse. They're very clearly saying these happened, just not in our right. world. And the comparative point of Nightcrawler being introduced in the comics as a victim compared to as somebody trying to attack the president, that never jibed with me. And I, I really love that that's something that you connected with, that idea of Nightcrawler being chased, because that is so central to our Blue Fuzzies concept. It's so cool to see these characters that, I mean, it's impossible to read this now without all that context of, you know, the, the last... 40 years or whatever since since they came onto the page uh but to see this as like wow this was where professor x found storm this is that moment this is when she entered the whole realm of comicdom was here in this book it's just incredible the design of these characters is just breathtaking I've read this a number of times. I have a bunch of copies only because, you know, it's one of those things that Marvel tends to throw in and publish in the back of a lot of hardcovers. You know, you get it as like an extra issue included in some of these hardcovers and collections and things like that. I don't think like the plot is fairly thin. Like, I don't think it holds up as like a great story. I think for its time, like it's an amazing introduction to so many characters, like it accomplishes a lot. It has that kind of interesting, like right on the boundary of like Silver Age and going into, you know, like, I guess what we would call like bronze to modern age, like more realistic stories where you really start getting into the character driven work Claremont does. Just like those first. That's actually, yeah, this is that like delineation. This, 
the uh, comic historians refer to this as the moment yeah, Bronze like, became so modern. So this and like the first 15 or so issues of Claremont all have that kind of like right in the middle feel. Because of the whole, you know, like timey-wimey contraction thing of like, uh, yes. Jeremy Baramy. Yes, the Jeremy Baramy-ness of the Marvel Universe where, you know, like Captain America, you know, was frozen for 20 years and thawed out 10 years ago. and But World War II was 80 years ago and Magneto was in the Holocaust, but he was, you know. and Like because of all of the time contraction things, it feels a little weird sometimes that like, Oh, no, 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 This is like, yeah, no, this is like five years ago, Scott Summers time or from some other story I've read. Because it does feel so much farther away from so much X-Men we have. Like, it, it kind of makes it a little bit of like an awkward starting point, which is one of the things that I thought was really cool about having this tribute issue that, like, we talk about later. Now, Nathan, I have a question for you about your relationship with GSXM1. Are you familiar with the classic reinterpretation, or are you just a GSXM purist? Are, are you talking about um, classic yeah, X-Men yeah. number one that added the 16-page epilogue that has nothing to do with anything except <laughs> Jean Grey feeling like a sexual object owned by Archangel. Oh, Angel at the time. My bad. Angel uh, and Wolverine, and there's all this sexual tension between Storm and Angel just because they can fly, and I'm like, that's a weird kind like. That's that's like, you know, sometimes when I'm watching TV and I'm like, these two gay characters do not belong oh, together. Why gosh, are you putting yes. them together? Oh, you're the only two gay regulars, right? Storm and Angel in classic X-Men. Yeah, that didn't. It's, it, are you like flyest? <laughs> Is that what you're trying to say? I think the first time I ever got it was like way back then, I'm guessing the 90s, the Marvel put out those like silver edged reprint titles where they did like X-Men 1 and Giant Size X-Men. It was the first time I got my hands on it. It wasn't until a lot later until I read the classic X-Men 1. Uh, so yeah, so th that was kind of new and exciting to me, but it. It's not part of the legacy. So how do you feel about seeing, because I mean, you're such a, you're such a varied X-Men lover. You kind of love X-Men from all over the spectrum. And this is such a weird slice. How does this interpretation of the X-Men for a guy who's read as much as you have sit with you, like Josh said, and like Arturo said, looking back, how does that come to life for you? Uh, when you, when you initially read it, I, there's two, like two different ways you can look at it. When you initially read it, to me, it's, it's a lot more like, like Josh said, it's not, it's not necessarily the greatest story, but they do layer in a lot of the elements that we see later on like the the in, more in depth with uh wolverine and department h it's kind of layered in storms past uh even iliana like appears for like a half a second as a kid being saved by Colossus and the tractor the story yeah it's thin but there's just a lot of little moments that maybe they picked up later on so i, I think as itself is a story it's not that important but it introduces obviously a lot to it now, Jonah, my, my, my wonderful little Bamf, you and I read this story like two years ago, almost to the day we actually launched this program for New York Comic Con two years ago. And here we are recording this the weekend of New York Comic Con, right before we record our amazing X-Men panels brought to you by LGBTHQ and Read Pop. We can't wait to bring you guys some Metaverse content. But Jonah, I've asked you to read this fucking book like way more than is acceptable. It might even still be a good comic, but I've read it so many times. I just, I just want to put my face in a blender. Jonah, tell me. Last call on thoughts on this stupid story before we look at the new version of it. Um, I just wanted to echo his sentiment that was said a little bit earlier. Rereading it again, kind of. I was mostly skimming through it because I don't think anything content-wise changed. It doesn't feel as special as it did when I first read it, where I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. It's kind of like a call to action of everybody. But then you realize I still hold the sentiment that Storm and John Proudstar had no reason to join the X-Men. <laughs> 
really it still comes across as a little sexist and a little you know racist and everything that i don't like i specifically remember your response being like what does this little old bald man have that the two of them would want for real and i was like Um, yeah (laughs) i don't know if this form of tribute was the best way to go about it. I think maybe instead having four people who each did a, a different chapter would have helped bring this into a better light. Because I think about something that Nico said eons ago on a podcast called uh, Now and Again about cover songs and... When you're doing the cover of a song, you have to do something to twist it, to make it different, to almost make it your own. Otherwise, it's either going to be bad or you're just overshadowing the original artist. And that's just kind of how I feel about it is maybe not the best kind of cover. So I would love to jump all over that because a lot of my like thoughts of this were along the same line. Like I think this was kind of... And I think it's a good experiment, and I think it's the type of thing that hopefully, like, Marvel learns from and realizes what they can do with stuff like this in the future. Because I think re-releasing classic older stories like this with modern art to make them feel, like, more in line with canon and to give them, like, a newer look and to appeal to, like, younger readers um, is awesome. And, like, there's one or two artists from this that I would love to just see them draw this entire book and to have a copy like that. But what they did here from this tribute was really cool. I would much prefer this in like a $20, $30 coffee table book with like the original pages side by side with the new pages from the different artist than like as, yes. With a script with some Ooh. ink yes. in the background. Then like yeah. as a comic. Yes. Like if you're going to do yeah, this love, version with 20, to see it side by side. with like, you know, 40 different artists, I would love it as, yeah, like in a, a much more collectible, displayable version than just like, hey, it's a comic with a different artist on each page. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you guys. This wasn't like the, the best uh, choice to to clearly tell a story. It's a little jarring, but... Yeah, I think you can do stuff like that for an issue like this where it's, yeah, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a, it, calling it a cover song is a pretty good analogy, actually. Um, and I think it's, I think it's cool. I think it's, it's neat how the artists really jammed out. And, you know, I, I would love to see a side by side comparison because I have seen a couple of these pages uh, online next to the originals, which is, which is really cool. Cause then you really, then you can appreciate it. And it's, it's an interesting to imagine like the brief for this right when when the artists were were selected it's like all right you got page 22 here's your source material do your thing and uh i don't know i think it was i think it was really fun i have to dial into this covers analogy because jonah you just unleashed something right because you guys are so right everything i'm hearing echoes my sentiments and i think like when i think about covers i think about three covers predominantly i guess i think number one and this is such a i'm about to date myself so hard i'm a little embarrassed but i think about because the night by <sighs> Ten Thousand maniacs oh. and i think about how that's a transformative experience of a similar song taken in a genre and a vein that redefine the context of what it means the original is sort of this rock anthem about being a hedonistic purveyor of nighttime sensationalism. <laughs> I don't even know how else to put it. It's just like, be dirty and fun. And the 10,000 Maniacs version, charged by Natalie Merchant's flawless whale, is one of those situations where the 
intonation belies a very different experience. When I think about covers, now, uh, anybody who's listened to most of my podcasts is aware that I am criminally obsessed with Jeff Buckley. I spent most of my life trying to perfect my voice to sound like his and nearly lost my ability to speak for a few years. So I think about Hallelujah, which is like my least favorite Jeff Buckley song. But I think about the fact that Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah is not a straight cover. It's a reimagining of the original, including lyrics that had been added from a different cover. So Jeff Buckley's version is a cover of a cover. And that's actually how it became the legend that it is. It's so far removed culturally from what it had been that it stands as its own song. Then the third cover I think about, and Demanda, I love you with all my heart. And Nathan, you know we have talked about this. But Madonna's American Pie is worse oh than any gastric <laughs> procedure I've ever had. She cut out half the lyrics. She reorganized the song. And like, I'm a big William Orbit guy. Like, William Orbit brings me to the table. But there's a real disharmony in what it's meant to be and the synth and the synthesis she brought it to. I agree with everything here, and I'm going to charge us a step further. I think I would have also liked a few pages in between written by Hickman of Moira's lives looking at this somehow. Like, I would have liked if this came a little bit further because what we saw, I love that it highlighted Poe, and I wonder if that's why Poe is so focused on over in X of Swords. I love that Havoc got absolutely no attention. <laughs> I love that there's so many things, and it's, you know, it's word for word the original, but I love, I would have loved a little bit more. I, just take me a step further. Take me down to the Kukroan city where the mutants are in mortal danger and Storm is pretty. Storm was Ooh, pretty yeah, in no, this book. A, oh my gosh, so beautiful. Like a lot of the art, they did a really, really good job with her and Lorna too. I'm like, yes. Yes. I love I, I love seeing Lorna and Havoc because it's I, you don't see them like on the cover of, of this book, right? It's it's always like a oh yeah, that's right, they were in this book too moment for me. Like I know Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Colossus, I know those guys are in this. I know Sunfire, I know, but uh, I, I kind of forgot that Havoc and Polaris were introduced at this point. I mean, this was both of their first appearance, right? No. Oh, you know. No, actually, and this is what's amazing. They're both in the Roy, uh, Roy Thomas era, and they are so fucking different before Claremont reinterprets them that if I were a bigger Havoc O'Prolaris fan, it would be one of those things where, like, I kind of, as a Wolverine guy, I don't count the Incredible Hulk issues. And I'm going to be honest, I own them, but, like, I own them in that way that my dad bought them at the time, and they're in Mylar's, and I never touch them, but I'm also not, like, tempted to touch them because, like, Herb Trimp, shrimpy little Wolverine isn't my dude, right? And, you know, Herb Trimp, dude creates Wolverine, dude creates Captain Britain, and then the famous versions look nothing like what he created. So, <laughs> I just, uh, I don't know. But that does actually bring me to a thing. Ladies and gentlemen, well, actually, all gentlemen, but ladies listening, guys, who were your favorite pages by? Like, let's celebrate some of this beautiful art. What pages really took you by by emotional shock? I know for me, some of the names that I saw here, I was really hoping, like, you know, I saw, oh my gosh, there's going to be a page by Matteo Loli. There's a page by Lionel Yu. There's, it's so many of the artists that I really, really love, and I can't wait to see what they do. But, like, then I saw there was a page by mm -hmm. Jen Bartel, and I was like, oh, well, I have to go there. I have to go there. There was a page by Marguerite Savage, and I'm like, oh, I got to go there. And I'm going to be honest, there is something so strong and unique about the Gia Hiru page. Now, I love Gia Hiru. I'm like the one guy, but giving that to John Proudstar, giving him an opportunity to be shown in a different style of art, he's always drawn so serious and so angry. It was so nice to have a cartoony version of Thunderbird to hold in our hearts. So for me, I kind of had the same thing. I was like, oh, there's Arby Silva. Oh, there's, you know, Pepe Laura. Oh, there. 
the ones that really took me the most, most surprising, page six, the Wolverine page by Segovia and Barreto. That's the one that I would love the entire book drawn by. Like, that's the one that to me, I just felt like they made, they took this, this kind of relic. They took this piece of its time and they kept it. They managed to preserve everything about it. Like, there's nothing that you would say was changed, but it feels perfect to fit in like if you were drawing it in a flashback today they did such a nice job like i would love to read the whole book the way that they did that page and then you mentioned jen bartell her page with uh, havoc and polaris particularly at the bottom were amazing you know the way that she depicted them and you know just lorna being glamorous while you know stressed and doing her work and havoc you know looking more stressed even though he ain't doing shit just <laughs> so That's story of Havoc's life. good and like oh she just nailed them and <laughs> and then i also marked raza's page with the c uh so perfect for that part of the book like i wouldn't want to see the whole book the way he did his page but i just thought what he did with the material he had was gorgeous i love sunfire's uh introduction page i thought the little scales on his on his outfit were a really nice touch and i love the stuff when lorna's launching krakoa into space i thought that was beautiful is that the one that you were talking about josh yeah i think it depends the bartell page is the one where it has her there's the bottom line of panels where she's kind of sweating and launching it up there's some beautiful pinks and purples in the top half of the page yeah. that really let yeah. you know it's a jen bartell page the one where she's actually throwing it is by my all-time favorite cover artist, Mike Del Mundo, whose work on Electra is some of the most striking, breathtaking cover work I've ever seen in my life. And I really love that page, too, as well, Arturo. Yeah, I was just going to say, the last few pages with um, that, that whole from Jim Bartel to Mike Del Mundo to Raza to the Marco Accicetto, that three-page spread where they're with the main... Uh, island throwing i guess you call it um that was probably the most beautiful part of the book i agree i have to echo nico's sentiment the guru hero page was probably my favorite because it was something i would never expect the x-men to be drawn as as something very american cartoonish my other favorite page was by raza the very realistic looking one and i think it's because it looked so stunningly beautiful so very much realistic i don't imagine i i can't imagine how much time that would take and how much time it would take to do even a full comic, not even an extended comic like a giant-sized issue, even just a standard 22 pages, that would be probably about a million years. So that actually even leads me to a thought. I like that earlier it was referred to as a call to action, and we mentioned that it's in chapters, and there's all these different artists. It wasn't until rereading this and reading the Wolverine and X-Force issues we're going to discuss today that I realized Giant Size X-Men begins with calling the champions of Krakoa together, and X of Swords begins with the champions of Krakoa calling their swords together. Mm. There's a parallel in how Giant Size X-Men and X of Swords set up a big idea through convocation and then developing that throughout a shorter <laughs> period of time. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's going to be as many issues gathering the swords <laughs> as it's going to be issues of fighting. So I'm really interested to see how that's yeah. all going to come out. It would have been more awesome to see it in the Giant Size format with uh, like you know the same size as the Hismu. Um, trade that would have been really nice to see the big giant coffee table book kind of thing and they have it now like marvel just just make a pretty one make make you know give me one to put next to my 
And we know Treasury, they're, yeah. they're selling. They're selling great. <laughs> We're going to be discussing today in tandem Wolverine number six, as well as X-Force number 13, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Victor Bogdanovic, color art by Matthew Wilson, letterer feces Corey Pettit, and Joe Caramagna, respectively, and designed by Tom Muller. The champions of Krakoa were selected to retrieve a special sword to participate in a cross-dimensional tournament against the champions of Araka. Wolverine was one of the chosen. Now he must find the Muramasa Blade. And I just want to open on Polaris's prediction of Wolverine's involvement in the upcoming tournament here by reading the prophecy, which is Lost Soul, an edge game. A lone wanderer returns to a forge left ablaze. And I think we got everything we could have hoped for in this Wolverine story to prove that to be true. Yes, I mean, uh, as in a Wolverine story, in any major event, you always go back in his past. That's pretty standard for Wolverine. I mean, he says he doesn't like looking at his past, but in every major story, we always go looking back at his past. So I have like, do you not like it, actually? <laughs> but um, I did like the, I did like the way they did it, though. And, and uh, I'm as some of you might know, I'm not the biggest um, Wolverine fan, but I am liking what Benjamin Percy is doing with the character in this because it's I feel like it's making me not really like him more, but it's an enjoyable read. I like the story. And the introduction with Solemn's character, I feel like he was a breakout star in all of this, for me anyway. You know, I had some unkind words for Solomon last week's episode because I specifically had a hard time associating him as Wolverine's arch nemesis the way that it was pitched to me in one of the promotional images. And I was like, okay, Wolverine's arch nemesis is ultimately himself, right? Like, I'm not crazy. Wolverine's true. arch nemesis is Logan. That's oh, true. Yeah. I agree. Oh, yeah. But I will say, you know, and to the to the credit of Benjamin Percy here writing a a dynamite character in two dynamite issues, Solemn, though I don't see him sticking around for very long, and I do see this ultimately being something that is retconned away, I think that having him be almost the polar opposite of Logan was the right call. Sure, he's made of adamantium, but his exoskeleton is made of adamantium, whereas Wolverine's skeleton is made of adamantium. Wolverine is avuncular and gruff, whereas Solemn is light and almost minstrel-esque. He's like a trickster. He's He, he, he's, he is like a trickster. He's managed to... Uh trick his way into the hearts of those around him to sway their views of him yet he has no connection to the Arako team very much he's they kind of hate him oh you know and he is so in that way he is the stand-in for Wolverine entirely because he is the the outlier Wolverine has nothing to gain from life on Krakoa other than peace of mind Wolverine will contribute to the protection and well-being of Krakoa, but there is, as we've seen only a few issues ago in the solo Wolverine run, Krakoa doesn't offer everything for Logan. He still needs to drink himself into a flurry in the great frozen north, you know, for example. I think that Wolverine is about as much of a part of Krakoa in his heart as Solemn is a part of Araka. Yeah, I could see that. And yeah, definitely. I would say the thing that made me like Solemn so much is that, I mean, his introduction is just completely badass. <laughs> I mean, he was in a prison of his own choice, technically, because he could have escaped any time, for a hundred years, and he enjoyed every second of it. I mean, they came to check on him. He was like, oh, are you here now? I guess I can go. It's fine. I've done enough pleasure for myself in the last hundred years. 
And it's just the fact that it was such a slap in the face for the other two. I just ate that up. I loved it. And the fact that they made him like a bisexual villain is just a cherry on top. Yes. 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 I I I am typically not one for villainizing our gay. However, to see representation in a broad spectrum that way that covers villainy, I can get behind that. I so last week I had said that I was ready to see what they were talking about when they said the seducer. And I was not disappointed. He is so charismatic. Everyone just loves him. And I felt like he really lives up to that title. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And again, that that makes him the exact opposite of Wolverine. Wolverine has no charisma whatsoever. <laughs> he's just... He's just... No, no. <laughs> so... <laughs> it's, it's a great... It's a great way to make a difference between the two of them. And... I think that's also how I felt comfortable with once realizing that they could both have a a Muramasa sword. Yeah, the duality in these two books is so strong, and and that's something that hasn't escaped me either. We have this story split up neatly between Wolverine number 6 and X-Force number 13. We have duality between Wolverine and Solemn. We have duality between Krakoa and Arako. There are two swords... For Christ's sake. I mean, everything about the direct pitting one element against another in this story was just so... No, I I hesitate to say hit you over the head, but it was a little over the top. Yeah, and I feel like that goes with this Wolverine in general. I feel like Benjamin gets that because Wolverine's is over top. I mean, everything he does usually is this extreme. I mean, look at the last issues where he goes to, like, a frozen pub and then gets attacked and all the people die and then he gets frozen it's just like all that is so extreme and it's just wolverine-esque you know so how can his story and exoswords not be the same <laughs> no of course of course you know it's it's leave it to logan to go for a quick beer and end up frozen in a block of ice with his blood being turned into clockwork devices meant to keep vampires alive during the day i mean that is a very logan series of unfortunate events yep and then an ex of swords being put in hell and climbing out of hell lava just to go and like to get a sword (laughs) (laughs) yeah that that was that was definitely a a loganism there uh just completely burning himself away in order to get to his sword and slowly re-knitting his body back together. It, it just, yeah, that that was honestly my favorite part of, of the, the two books. See, seeing Logan crawl out of the fires of hell as, yep. a, as a burning metal skeleton. Yep. Dynamic. I did love that imagery. Dynamic. It was really well done you know and i feel like i feel like especially as we transition over into the second issue being that of x-force the inclusion of the hand while being directly responsible for muramaz's imprisonment in the forge of hell didn't feel heavy-handed pun intended (laughs) (laughs) oh thank you that no that you know what that's all the laughter i deserve that's all i get um but it was truly really, though the 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 <laughs> the inclusion of the hand felt a little bit thin in a good way. I wasn't ready for this to become a hand story. I wasn't prepared to know the the 
intricate details of why Muramasa committed himself to the hand. It's enough to me that he just did. Yeah, I mean, I have to, I have to definitely agree with that. I like, I feel like this is a, a constant theme so far in Dawn of X um, because they introduce a villain, they kind of like give you a little backstory on why they're there, and then they're like, "Well, we're gonna see this later, you know, or this might have consequences later, or you know, maybe a writer will pick this up later." And this definitely sets up for a writer to pick it up later if they're not going to pick it up later themselves. You know, like if Wolverine has to get another villain at some point just for his story, they're like, oh, remember when he went to hell and saw the hand and saw that sword maker? Let's go into that now. Yeah, yeah being a crossover, you have to stay within the realm of X of Swords, but it definitely sets it up if they want to come back to that later in the Wolverine series itself. And that's what I think I love so much about this story is it felt like a Wolverine story within the scope of X of Swords rather than just the X of Swords storyline itself. So it can be read as a Wolverine story or X of Swords. And I thought that was really well done writing-wise. Yeah, I have to agree. It's a credit to to all of these books that we're going to be discussing this week as we move on a little bit later to Marauders being a full-fledged storm story. I think that there was such care and patience taken this week to make sure that these characters, these characters that spilled out of the pages of Giant Size X-Men number one, no less, are getting their fair share of the spotlight when it comes to setting them up for something so much greater like the events of Ten of Swords. I did like that this has kind of followed the theme of all the previous X-Forces where the main characters have to die in order to move the story along. Okay. <laughs> I, I get that. So, it, I mean, it's, it's obviously Logan uh, healed himself with, with his healing factor, but... I mean, he did technically have to die and go to hell in order to to get yeah. his sword. You know, and frankly, once you're in hell, I think I think the splitting the hair of did you really die is a little bit of a moot point. <laughs> you know what I right. mean? That's like, true. You're, you're a skeleton, you're a skeleton, and you're here. I mean, that's like two-thirds of the requirement. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, um, speaking on theories... I was thinking about what, like, he had to give up. You know, it came with a price to get that sword. And I'm like, I know Solomon was very interested in his healing factor. Because, you know, he said, he's like, oh, well, I guess you can't die. And that's basically the only real thing he said to Wolverine, um, besides his snarkiness and cleverness. Um, so I'm like, well, maybe he decide, maybe he offered to take that away from him if he gave him the sword. You know, because what else? I don't know what else he could say that he wants from Wolverine. Besides that, or maybe he said, you have to give me a place on Kokoa if I win. I don't know. But maybe I'm, my mind is going to the healing factor for some reason. <laughs> well, and we, ha- we have to think about what Solemn's innate abilities are, because let's remember that the denizens of Arako are mutants unto themselves. So despite having what was described as like a, a nano, nano, like microbial adamantium chainmail armor, I wouldn't say that that is limited to Solemn's only mutant capability. So what if he had the ability to trade out Wolverine's healing factor? That would be very interesting. Because hmm. I'm like, what else would he want from Wolverine? Wolverine. That's what's that's what's been bugging me. I'm like, what else could Wolverine even offer in that moment other than his healing factor? That's the best part of his mutant ability. That's what makes him survive so much because he cannot basically die. <laughs>
I really just thought healing factor as well. Because something that I always say is let them rest when it comes to these really tragic characters. And I feel like for Wolverine, just dying for a little bit like might be his rest because you know how you say it's like you only sleep when you're dead just let him rest a little bit i don't think he would be too upset about trading his healing factor no honestly i think i think a a death at the hands of a capable opponent might be what wolverine is looking for in his in the the ultimate finality of it all well, if you think about it, I mean, he just, in the Wolverine story itself, if you go back to this just Dawn of X, um, he already killed his team before. He already got mind control before and had to deal with that again. Like, he's done that so many times, but he had to deal with that again. Luckily, they could be reborn, but just in Dawn of X, he's already gone through so much in his own personal life that he's had to deal with his whole life already, like this reoccurring again. So wanting to actually stay dead this time, maybe having a chance to, he's like, oh, well, you know, that's great. I mean, they'll probably bring me back because it can all be reborn. But as he's seen with like Domino and other people, not really Colossus, I guess, because Colossus is still hurting. But with other people that have been reborn, they kind of feel better after they've been reborn. Their, their, their memories actually seem like the past. Like to bring up how Domino felt when she got reborn in X-Force. She was like, well, I remember the hurting but it just seems like so long ago. So I'm over it now, it's fine. So maybe he wants to feel like that. I mean, honestly, if that's what Resurrection offered, I would be dead like every three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, you know you know when you work like over 50 hours in a week and you're just like, sleep doesn't even do it for you and like no amount of downtime on earth is gonna like heal the wounds of your soul and you're just like, all right, I'll just take a quick like death nap and I'll come back fully reformed. It's fine. I mean, I'm, yeah. I get that. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they, oh, they do have that that, that pool of of uh adamantium so it's it's not they can, like they can forge him exactly oh that's right yeah the question is would he want to be reforged because he talks about how he's in pain constantly from just having no cushion at the joints and being so heavy with the adamantium i wonder if he would ever choose to willingly go through that again that's a good point. That's Ooh, a really good point. Yeah. Mm. I think that I think that a lot of that would require where he is in terms of retirement. You know, if if we are able to skirt the inevitable phalanx of it all in the future of Powers of X, if we're able to avoid any sort of after Ten of Swords, if life were just easy breezy and perfect, you know, I think if he could conscionably retire, then I think that he might opt to stick with Bone Claws. You know, but frankly, if I if I went from being the best there is at what I do, and what I do is slash people in half with my adamantium claws, I wouldn't want to downgrade to bone. That's another really good point. I don't see him wanting to retire anytime soon. He's always the type of guy that is going to fight for what he believes in. And that's a really solid point. If the adamantium gives him an extra edge to be able to protect his loved ones, he probably would take it. Yeah. And he has he has started to build that connection with the children of Krakoa. So I can see him wanting to spend quite a, a long time trying to protect the the nation. Oh, and he is reconnected with the Summers and Jean. Yeah. Again, so. <laughs> oh, they're a thruple. Yeah, they're definitely a thruple. Like, there's no doubt about it. 
They're a throuple. And it is the most perfect thing to ever happen to comics. I want to see Wolverine and Scott in bed together. We don't have to have, like, full-on sex. They just need to wake up in the morning together in a bed. And that's all I want. I, I don't even... I don't, I've never really shipped them before. I just need to see it on a page, and then I'd be... I don't even need to talk about it anymore after that. I'm like, we got I, it. I, it's I would canon. Love, <laughs> I would love to see something so innocuous as like Gene walking in and being like, oh, thanks for the invite. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Please. I want that so and, bad. And Logan to say something along like, this happens with or without you. Oh. <laughs> Why aren't you a writer? Right? You need to need to write this story. <laughs> I, I got it. I got it. I got it unlocked. Something... Something about the intricacies of a of a thruple really call out to me uh, as the as the as the non thruple um, <laughs> members. I don't know. I don't know. You know. I think. I think to posit my own theory about what Wolverine might have given away is. I think that to to piggyback off off Rotter's statement that he might have given him a place on Krakoa. I think Wolverine might take his place in exile if, if he lives at hmm. the at the uh, golf course with with the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> with uh... <laughs> yes with with uh with, with, with mask, mask. <laughs> yeah oh god <laughs> yes oh my god that'd be so funny uh. so what we saw during the forging of the blades is that uh they've been infused with muramasa's own soul so at this point we have three swords in play that have souls in them we have wolverines we have magics and we have um solemns oh yeah that's true so i'm kind of wondering if that's going to play into this somehow well i also you know and something i wanted to say and i don't know if anybody has come across it in their organic read history but um i was wondering where the muramasa shield has been at one point muramasa forged a shield out of the fragments of wolverine's torn soul into oh. a well a shield yeah so that that's something that that is still in existence someplace if i'm not mistaken i'll go to nico for a quick fact check on that but i would be really curious to see that come into play because frankly if we're bringing swords why can't we bring shields that is true that is true yeah a, th- a thing which, regrettably, we're going to have to wait and see how it plays out before we can cover. So mm-hmm. from, th- <laughs> from there, I always say from there. I always transition with from there. <laughs> we're going to talk about chapters three and four of X of Swords, which are by the same creative team written by Benjamin Sexy Lumberjack Percy with Bogdanovich and Matthew Wilson. I don't want to get too into the politics of what's going on with Bogdanovich, but in the green room, Josh, Nathan, and Arturo, and Jonah, and I came to a really interesting realization. For those of you who aren't familiar, Bogdanovich has sort of made it a little clear that he's not the biggest fan of the current trajectory of the X-Books. I might recommend that he and Rob Liefeld work on a project together. And in the course of that, I kind of think that comes across in this two-parter in a very specific way. It's almost as if the only parts of this book that were given artistic love were the old Logan the not like I want to say the stuff that could be traced but there were so many touches back to Mark Millar's story to all the Civil War Mark Guggenheim stuff where uh, Humberto Ramos is drawing Wolverine and he's melted down to just his bones and adamantium and one drop of blood and he's able to completely regenerate his entire being from a single drop of blood and it turns out it's because every time Logan dies he goes to hell and he fights the devil and gets to come back and 
And there were a lot of touches back on that very specific era, right? That sort of Mark Millar, Mark Guggenheim. Daniel Way. Very Wolverine Origins Wolverine. Yeah, Daniel Way. Thank you. Another guy who contributed heavily to that era. And I find myself... I hate that I love Solomon, yes. but I do. I love Solomon. Yes. Because, because he's an adamantium Dawkin. He literally just looks like Dawkin painted blue. Yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. that I love him. I love so. Him. No, I hate I'm that I so love happy he's, that they're not wonderful. just like mustache twirling evil villains. Like <laughs> I love that you know we got a spotlight on one of them. No, I want Bowler Hat Man from the Mika Robinson. <laughs> I, I want Doom. him. We got Twirl a that mustache. this household. We got a spotlight Twirl on an Arachnid like... sword bearer, and he's a pan king. Like I love it. I love it. When they introduced him as, and here comes Wolverine's new nemesis, I was kind of like, you can't just do that, man. You can't just say, here's somebody's new greatest adversary. And then I read Solemn, and I kind of fell in love with him. I just, yeah, I'm, yes. I'm for it. I, I hope he sticks around for a good long while. Yes! <laughs> yeah, I was, I was more entranced than I wanted to be. And I want to bring up something. Josh, you have been so amazing in our private chats and our group chats where we all kind of talk X-Men theory and we develop these ideas. You brought up one of my favorite runs ever, the late 320s Uncanny that was very tabby, taking care of Sabretooth, tied back into X-Force. You know why they can say Wolverine has a new nemesis? Because Wolverine's nemesis sort of depends on who's writing Wolverine. When Wolverine is written by Claremont, it's almost always Sabretooth, but Sabretooth's at mm -hmm. the bottom of a pit. When it's Jason Aaron, it's Mystique. Yeah. But Mystique has bigger love interests than Wolverine afoot. And Dokken is now a good guy. So Dokken can't be his nemesis. And fucking God, the less said about Ugh. Romulus, the Thank better. Thank God Romulus has not even come up Ugh. yet. Like, let's not even let's not even conjure him. Rom the Space Knight? No, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Something much worse. This, like, rat cat man. <laughs> no, I know, I'm making a joke. Yeah. He was Wolverine, but with five but, claws. Uh, <laughs> and in the yeah, past. Awful. So I feel like, for all intents and purposes, that I'm very challenged by the ideas being put forth here. Because at the heart of it, they're trying to welcome us to a new era of Wolverine. They're trying to welcome us to this new idea. And I've been very uncertain of Captain... Um, Basso Profundo himself, because I feel in some ways his Wolverine is a step back from my Wolverine. The Wolverine that made my heart giggle was the Wolverine playing with kids mm -hmm. in House of X. And where is that guy? But he doesn't get to be that guy. Wolverine has to be this guy so that Cyclops can be that guy with his kids. That's fair. I mean, I had a lot of the same notes. Um, one of my issues with this is that I really have no idea what Percy's Wolverine is supposed to be anymore. You know, there's been such a huge contrast from him rolling with the kitties in Hawks 1, like you said, to pissing in Magneto's helmet, to having secret conversations with Krakoa. Like, I kind of was getting the feeling that Percy was trying to give us a Wolverine that was so hardened by war that he was uneasy in peace, like a Hurt Locker Wolverine. But now, after these two issues, like, I don't even know what his Wolverine is supposed to be anymore. Okay, sword debt, right? That's what I'm gonna call it, sword debt. I have no problem with sword debt. I'm really mm -hmm. interested in sword debt, but what the fuck does Wolverine <laughs> have left to lose? Uh, are we gonna find out that Aunt May is gonna come back and he's never gonna have been married to one of the women he's been <laughs> married to? You guys, tell me, what did you think about this two-part extended setup of Wolverine Goes to Hell, seen it, but I was, I don't know, Everything I'm saying, seen it, like, kind of offhanded, waving it off. Like, I, I feel, though, like, 
I've seen it, but I don't mind having seen it because I feel like I feel like Percy's really getting I, somewhere. For me, the Wolverine part of it was kind of like just also happening alongside the stuff that I really cared about. Um, the, what I cared more about was Solemn. You know, I, I, I saw this as kind of like a story to tell us and, and introduce us to, to Solemn. So I was excited about that. Wolverine literally going to hell to get the like all of that was a little bit too neat for me the and the, the wedding and the beast and those guys were such flat you know villains and and the beast is hyped up as this big bad and then you know he's not i don't know i mean the the story itself was 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 all right for me what the parts that were exciting were anything that had to do with Arako. uh and you had mentioned victor bogdanovich and and you know kind of like him not being in you know in 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 tune with what's going on with the broader story and i think that was really clear with uh who was this pestilence Yes. Right. One yes. of the, one of the horsemen. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. So I. All right. So I only got the. I, it took me a couple of days to get out to the comic shop. So I had turned off or, or muted uh, X spoilers on Twitter. So I feel like I kind of missed the discourse uh, about is pestilence trans, <laughs> and uh-huh. I, and in reading it, to me, it just feels like. This guy just isn't, you know, it was just a little bit of sloppy editorial mess there. He, I feel like he just drew him as a man. And now that's something that maybe they are going to have to do something with, or, or they, it's an opportunity to do something with. Yeah. Um, Pestilence being trans is the uh, LGBTQ uh, X fans headcanon to explain Victor Bogdanovich not paying enough attention to know what gender the (laughs) fucking character he was drawing was. Yeah, so I mean, I think that sucks that it's, uh, you know, him clearly not paying attention. But now that it's in there, you know, and now that we're we exist in this world where there's such a close feedback loop between, uh, you know, the, the creators and the audience. I can't imagine that, you know, the X offices aren't really aware that this is a thing. <laughs> and uh, and I hope somebody there sees an opportunity here. Uh, but I, I don't I don't have high hopes for it. And I definitely don't think it's going to be shoehorned into this story. So unless we get a pestilence one shot where we uh, explore what's going on with pestilence, I don't I don't think we're going to get any resolution. I'm honestly surprised editorial didn't catch that and send the fucking page back to him. <laughs> seriously, seriously. Well, and, you know, it's really fascinating because you guys are saying, I hope and I wonder, and I don't know if you guys realize, but there is actually a historical context for what you're talking about. What, cis, cis white Going guys back fucking to... up? <laughs> a trans story? <laughs> no, fans becoming obsessed with a small queer element and getting their way from it. Now, all of this John Constantine is bisexual stuff, I've read literally every page of John Constantine, ever. Like that. Oh, I'm a year behind. That's how I do it. I'm always a year behind on John Constantine so that I can make sure when I go back to read my year of Constantine, I have every issue in order that they came out in terms of the crossovers. John Constantine is a magical entity in my spirit self. Like he really matters to me. And the issue that first established that John Constantine is even 1% bisexual is a one-off by a ghostwriter filling in so that Garth Ennis could catch his breath. In fact, in the previous run by Jamie Delano, Constantine says some vaguely homophobic stuff. And all of a sudden, one guy writes one time, I've had my fair share of girlfriends, the odd boyfriend here and there. 
And fans became obsessed with this, and they wouldn't let it go. At one point in a few issues earlier, somebody, like a guy, is kind of like, hey, and he's like, no, excuse me, I don't do that. And then in issue 41, he's just like, or 51, or whatever whatever issue it is, he's just like, oh, odd boyfriend in the past. People loved this so much, they wouldn't let it go. Finally, when one of my personal heroes, Brian Azzarello, got his hands on the title, he drove John Constantine's bisexuality up the charts. He made sure that John was bisexual every fucking issue. Because if John's gonna be bi, you make him bi. And... As time went by, <laughs> um, fans just loved it more and more, and now we have bisexual John Constantine on TV. So while I'm not exactly sure that we're going to have the pestilence party, I do think that there is a historical context for a dire need for queer representation, even from the tiniest seedling, to germinate to something fuller than anybody could have ever hoped. Yeah, and you know what? They have the people in the X office to kind of make that point to editorial as well, which is nice, you know? They have the right people in the, uh, you know, in the group chat. <laughs> yeah, you know, Leah and Ida would be like, do. come on, let's do it. And, you know, I, I kind of, I hate being a part of villain culture because I think villain culture is super problematic and it encourages negative behavior. But I don't think that all of the Iraqans see themselves as villain. I think many of them see themselves as kind of like freedom fighters trying to take back what's theirs, right? And with that in mind... I'm I'm really interested in perhaps getting a concise history of the Iraqan X-Men, sort of like a, a parallel take by the big ones. I would love Iraqan Giant Size X-Men number one, Iraqan X-Factor number one, Iraqan Jim Lee X-Men number one, sort of what would have been the mirror fuck of what was going on in the other side of things. Because, you know, the more I think about this story, the more compelled I am to ask myself, why hell? Are they trying to tell us that hell is a shared hell between these two universes? And if it's not a shared hell, then how exactly are these swords connected to this story? Why these story? Why these swords? And the Marasima Blade is not new. We've seen Wolverine with the Marasima Blade before. So... I really need to know, at what point are we blurring the ideological line of interdimensionality and sort of sliding some religion in there? And I, you know, Wolverine is always a very Judeo-Christian character in a lot of ways. He is very, in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of all of the pain and misery that religion brings, amen. And I can't help but feel, with a character like Wolverine, tying him to hell and keeping him this very cowboy idea. It, it does sort of keep him, like, white bread in a weird way in this whole story full of disintegrating reality. And I'm I'm personally tickled by that well, extensively. And how much of the, you know, the swords being chosen and the locations and where you have to go to find them is, you know, that kind of greater worldly connection and how much of it is uh, Saturnine just fucking with people? And there you said the magic words. So anybody who's been following X's for Podcast for a while knows that my favorite Captain Britain story of all time is Crooked World, Alan Moore and Alan Davis. Did everybody catch my absolute favorite thing in the entire world where they said Mad Jim Jaspers is responsible for some of the insanity going on in this universe right well, now? Well, yes. Mad Jim Jaspers oh, has yes. his own territory that he created that's basically a black marketplace that you can grab illicit goods. At least one of the swords is going to be in that black marketplace, right? Like, <laughs> oh, gotta one be. of them's got to be there. Yeah, I, I love, I absolutely fucking love the white pages, what's yes. going on right there. Like, I, you know, spare a thought for the, the poor dumb fucks that bitch about white pages or have been bitching about white pages throughout the Dawn of <laughs> X because they're fucked now because this is... This is a lot of content. If you're skipping the white pages, you're missing 
You're only the, getting half. You're the story. only getting half the story. Right. <laughs> oh, no, we're getting the, we're that getting is the like my favorite part of these issues. At the same time, we're getting the comic. Like it's it's amazing. This yeah, is like for every incredible. every you know comic reader who was the nerd kid who sat down with those like encyclopedias of stuff or like the card sets and reading like every paragraph about special issues or when shit <laughs> happened when they yes. were a kid. Like this is just loading it into the book so you have it simultaneously, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's so cool that they're pumping that stuff in and the way that they're doing it because we saw the name Mad Jim Jaspers just like on a list in you know in our earlier chapter, but then now getting this context and seeing and learning a little bit about uh, what was that other area, the Mercator? Uh, yeah, that that's really interesting. I'm I'm curious to see who the Regent is there, and I'm sure we've already seen a clue to who that is. It just hasn't been clear. I think people are hypothesizing that it's Mr. M as the read there. So, oh, 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 I haven't heard that I know, name right? so long. That just made my heart sing. And I don't know who here is a gamer, right? I, I'm super into JRPGs. They are my JRPGs and classic platformers kind of write the scales of my brain. And when I started on Final Fantasy, my first Final Fantasy was seven. And I played seven while 10 was out because <laughs> my friends were all playing 10. So someone could lend me seven to try it. And I fell in love, and then I played 8. And my first note between 7 and 8 was, hmm, there's a few more cutscenes in 8. I didn't really do 9, no offense, 9. I eventually did 9. It's much better on mobile. So then I watched 10. Please note, I just said, I watched 10. Because so much of Final Fantasy 10 is sitting and watching it, and then doing a puzzle. But then came 12, and 12 was a movie that you just kept having to press X. And I know that I... I don't want to say mourn the death of active play in JRPGs. I don't. Because I think what they've become is spectacular, and I wet myself when I saw the preview for Final Fantasy 16 that they just dropped. Looks fucking amazing. Where's your party? But I guess I can understand for some people, just kind of understand that comics is meant to be a visual medium, and they're like these white pages, they're homework, but you know, it's the evolution of the medium, guys. Like, I don't remember a lot of people that were into Lost being like, but I hate that there's all these clues. <laughs> no, that's, that's half the yeah. excitement. And if you want something a little bit flatter, there are tons of less immersive comic lines out there right now and there is i'm gonna guarantee you at least a couple dozen x books you haven't read from before this immersive experience this is kind of an evolution of what they were trying to do with those ar pages like five ten years ago i think they just found that most people don't want to open their fucking phone the hellblade I, okay, we're in hell. I get it. You know, we're, we're forging these mystical blades and whatever. But the fact that Solemn just happens to have another mystical blade kind of just seemed unnecessary to me. I don't know. Going to hell seemed a little unnecessary to me. Honestly, when, when we learned, what was that? There's one land called uh, Infury, the forge in Otherworld. You guys know what I'm talking yeah. about? In Fury, the Everforce. Yeah. So, like, a part of me is kind of like, okay, then if if that's the case, and if the fires of In Fury forge the hottest, you know, deadliest weapons, why the hell are we in hell going? You know what I mean? So, a part of me is kind of like, so wait, is hell the In Fury? Is that going to be kind of like a reveal? Um, I don't know. It, it just seems, it feels like we have a uh, a wealth of mystical lands, and I don't know if everyone's keeping track of it. It feels like a post-it note got, you know, fell off the board here, so, and, and we ended up with two hells. I definitely got the feeling, like I went back and checked the credits afterwards, and, you know, Hickman and Howard are not credited for anything in these two books. 
but I definitely got the feeling that the white pages were not written by Ben Percy. Like, I feel like oh, yeah. all 10 of those realms were written by Hickman and Howard and then split up among mm-hmm. the books that they were going to be put in because yep. there was way too much overlap between what Percy was doing in his story and what they were giving us in those other worlds, like with the Forge. Like, there was way mm-hmm. too much overlap for those things to have been by, like, one writer being like, hey, I'm going to say it here. <laughs> And then I'm going to make the exact same thing a different place over here. Um, and they'll both yeah. be special because okay. they're the only one of themselves. Yes. Okay. So I'm not crazy. Yes. It, it felt like a, like, yeah, it felt like an echo. Like what, what's going on? And uh, I think the reason why it feels like that is because it's Wolverine. And something that I've noticed about this two-part story is that it didn't really tell anything new about Wolverine. It felt a very comfortable situation to put Wolverine in. You put Wolverine back in Japan, and then you put Wolverine in hell against somebody who he now has to face who's very similar to him and almost indestructible. It feels like Wolverine is a very safe character to do stories with because it's always going to sell well. You put Wolverine in a title, you put him on a cover, you make him say bub and be an asshole, and boom, you sell millions of copies all around the world. And I feel like there could have been a lot more boundary pushing if you're going to put Wolverine in a story. I really did appreciate seeing Lady Mariko Mm -hmm. and finding out that she's the Scarlet Samurai, which I don't even know what that means, Mm but I'm a fan of Mariko, so obviously it means she's a badass woman, which is more complicated. Yeah, Yeah, that came out of the old man Logan run, right? That's what I really would have loved to see more of. Like, I I know it's not the story, but like to have Logan meet Mariko again and just have it be like a little blurb in the data page seemed like it's a lot more important than that. It should have been. It felt like there were areas that the story could have given us more i also think this entire two run issue could have been one issue yeah Yeah. and it felt like there could have been areas where would have been more interesting to delve into and have those slowed down moments of dialogue whether it's with lady mariko or these other people that wolverine is talking to and instead they gave us very brief flashbacks to either in the white page or just one panel with no dialogue. And then they just gave us other more detailed moments that just didn't feel as interesting. And I don't know if it's just because that I, I don't I, I don't know about anybody else in the room, but I also tend to be like, this minor moment is my favorite moment, and I'm gonna conject mm-hmm. I'm gonna conject and hypothesize and theorize everything that could have happened in that moment (laughs) even though it's the littlest little blurb and it's just that's just kind of how i feel about this issue is that it's just there could have been better moments yeah uh i did love the the difference between when solemn went to see to find the maramusa plane um where he went to the oracle of arako like i love the difference between uh like you know Krakoa is like no precogs no precogs no precogs and on arako the oracles seem to have sort of a lofty um everybody you know went to her for advice kind of position so I just I want to say I agree with Silver Samurai. It should have been him. I think that would have been. I think that would have been really interesting to like get as a writer. I think that would have been a fun exercise to just be like, all right, this guy's basically a blank slate. You know what I mean? I mean, plenty has been written about Silver Samurai in the past, but 
We haven't seen him do much in Donovex except the you know run the run the tournaments, which I was happy to see. But when Gorgon was named as one of the captains, I wasn't familiar with the character, so a part of me was kind of like, man, it would have been cool for Silver Samurai to in that role. So oh yeah, absolutely. I'm glad he was mentioned. I'm glad he's he's in it, but I think it would have been so much more interesting to see him go through this these trials and, and tribulations rather than seeing Logan do it again because it just it didn't feel like something new it, it almost felt like a like a tribute <laughs> yeah it just seems like a rehash yeah. like yeah wolverine goes to hell yeah he's done that before like you guys said wolverine goes to japan he's done that before it's it's nothing bringing the characters forward i love solemn though love solemn love solemn and now i really like and i think some of some of what you guys are saying goes back to what nico said right with that they were very there were clearly stories that Percy wanted to touch on going back to the Malar and the way and Guggenheim runs. And that kind of shaped where they went with this. But like, I loved what they did with Silver Samurai. There's so many characters and so many egos on Krakoa. And to give us a little glimpse that like, there can only be 10 sword bearers. And some of these egos are going to get bruised by people who think that like, <laughs> they're top 10 skill people who should be in this fight, I think was a great little touch. Um, I also felt like, yeah, this should have been one issue. I mean, especially if you read um, Vita's Marauders issue, like Vita told that whole story much more tightly getting it in one issue. Um, But I'm kind of glad it's two because when you hear Teeny talk about like when they chose to expand it and make it more issues and how they were able to kind of they had other ideas and stories they wanted to tell and that that's what allowed it to expand and, you know, go up to 22 issues. I feel like this is probably one that went from one to two and the extra stuff we got is the solemn stuff. And like if this was one issue, it probably would have been all the stuff that we were less enthusiastic about just in one (laughs) issue. (laughs) It wouldn't have been the one tight issue that we wanted. Um. (laughs) I also kind of wonder if this is going to be Bogdanovich's final bit of this run because I know that I know the next two-parter is by Joshua Kassara, and he'll be doing the X-Men. No, he will not. He'll be doing the Wolverine and X-Force next two-parter, which I think, I I don't know. I think we might be seeing a massive shift. And I feel like we said that, you know, Cable only got in four issues, and now whatever Cable's going to be is going to change dramatically. And we even know Cable's going off to S.W.O.R.D., and we only got like five Wolverine with all this Omega Red stuff before now we're dealing with Hell. And a lot of books barely got to get started, like Hellions and X-Factor. And now they're all in the shit of this. And we just found out that Sword Number 2 is going to tie in with Mm. King in Black. And so I guess the X-Men are going to be in King in Black immediately following this. I'm so not excited about that. (laughs) No. (laughs) I like Null. I actually really like Null. I think he is the funniest little edgelord (laughs) ever. Like, he's adorable. I mean, we already had Malachite, so I don't really understand Null. But, like... He's fun. He kind of looks like he's in Nelson, and I appreciate that. But at the end of the day, I feel as though the pandemic schedule shuffle led to some weird choices in terms of partial resets. And I'm not sure how I feel about getting three parts of the crossover a week if they're not just going to make it a $10 X book written by three people. Like, I, I think we're maybe a little too focused on format and page count in some ways. And I wonder if that's a little bit would hurt this story, because I do agree this should have been split into two. But like, I maybe would have liked the solemn stuff as a backup. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, we all paid it, else. but I mean, this was not worth eight dollars. <laughs> 
I would agree. This was more of like a six five dollar buy-in, and that's nothing to do with the quality of what Benjamin Percy created. It's it's the limitations of a crossover narrative flow. We have an expectation of pacing to be at a certain rate. Otherwise, if the pacing is too fucking intense in a random issue, now you need every issue to be that crazy. And at a certain point, you kind of tip the believability scales in the wrong direction. Well, buckle up, y'all, because by the <laughs> last panel uh, of the the. Uh, x-force issue you know it's gonna we're, we're gonna go through a couple more issues like this right we Ooh, still got a yeah. lot of spots to fill on that board and they're gonna make our I know. Iliana and iliana just the waiting there time. i know how could they do that to her but you know she's uh, every she's got that smart remark every time somebody comes in it seems like you know so it makes sense like also to echo something that maddie said last week that's now even a little more apparent how do they know where to stand <laughs> Is it written in Krakoan? Is, is it so written true. in like some special like they have the psychic to read? Like, is there magic behind that? Or because I don't understand it. But Lord, I, think, I told I think him the floor glows as you approach it, and then that's you. You go to the one that's glowing most brightly. Because, uh, that's, I, that's my head cannon. So it's a Final Fantasy <laughs> Ten cloister. I God. can justify Ileana because she was like in one of the circles that looked like the, it was in the twelfth position. So I was like, okay, sure, that makes sense. Whatever. And then Wolverine <laughs> went to like the three, like the third one or whatever and it's like okay now you're just doing it randomly and now now you need to explain what's going on <laughs> also is she just standing there yeah she's I just standing the there one. like i wonder if she's like how she goes to the restroom you know like all of that stuff because because they have about like three i days. need someone <laughs> bringing her a cheeseburger in like the final page of one of them like someone needs to be taking <laughs> care of her it's oh, kate it's kate it. it's kate and the thing of it that kind of cracks me up is like, I kind of need their conversation. If they could have just given me one more page where he was like, hey, and she was like, hey, where you been? And he was like, went to hell to get my sword. And she was like, mm, you have to go to someone else's hell. <laughs> That's a rental. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, I just, I feel like this was one of the most discussable books, even if we didn't feel like it had the most information. It, it took me a while to catch it with the data page with the Everford, with the Furies. Like, I kept reading it thinking it was, like, the Furies that showed up in Captain Britain. And I was like, oh, wait, no, that's actually, like, the like the mystical Furies that they were talking about. So I was like, oh. Yeah, I... Oh, like, yeah, yeah, like the Furies, like yeah. Hippolyta, the Furies, yeah, right? I, I think my last comment, Wilson's Colors... And I found it interesting that it was Wilson on both of them because, well, all of his hell stuff, he's, his oranges and reds are just gorgeous. And so the opening of the book and anything, you know, where they were down with the lava and Wolverine melting, he did a fantastic job. But I was really surprised that in the first half in the Wolverine issue, there was a lot of drab tones and he didn't really contrast when the story changed from place to place as much. But I appreciated it. I liked it a lot more in the second issue in X-Force. I thought he did a really nice job of really establishing different background tones and contrasting tones with each setting every time there was a flashback or a move to another place. The way he worked with the brighter colors, I really liked. I thought he did a, a really nice job, and I thought he was a really good choice as the colorist for this story. One last thing I'm going to complain <laughs> about. I'm never a fan of Wolverine being boiled down to nothing but bones. Uh. There's a whole lot of uh, just physical practical ah. problems that come that come up with that and how he's able to move so you know but it, it, you know overall it was fun and in conclusion solemn stand solemn. solemn i mean and yeah and solemn guys and, and now it's canon too right that 
Solemn saw Wolverine's hog because of the way he regenerated. Right? So that's that's canon. <laughs> I was going to say, how do we go through this that's issue canon. with all the Wolverine like, naked? And this is mine. He, he saw his hog grow Oh, He saw all the stages. <laughs> <laughs> how did he? Go, how did we go through all this issue with Wolverine like naked most of it and we didn't even get to see like much of it, you know? Well, he was fully naked in preparation for Halloween. He was a full-on skeleton. <laughs> bare, yeah, bare, bare bones, honey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> this diet honey so with that bare bones fuck that wolverine just tried to get going in hell oh that's why when okay yeah that's why gay people go to hell got it so um with that in mind guys i've had such a fucking amazing time talking about this two-part issue and it has been so exciting to see where this story is gonna go because i've had absolutely no i had no expectation that they were going to hell like i just really didn't so i was so pleasantly thrown even if i didn't love everything i got from it and one more time i can't believe i love solemn <sighs> However, if you like this cast of folks and you're a big fan of X-Men, which I'm going to assume you are if you've listened this far, you might want to check us out coming up on YouTube through the in, uh, Find the Metaverse. Metaverse is a massive ongoing project by a number of the largest Comic-Cons in the world to continue bringing Comic-Con content to people all over the world, even during the pandemic when we can't all meet up somewhere physical. We're going to be masterminding two different X-Men panels, one on Tuesday and one on Wednesday. Now, by the time this episode dropped, they have already come out. So you'll be able to find those on YouTube by checking out the Read Pop YouTube channel or taking a look at the links on the X's for Podcast page. Guys, it's been a spectacular experience getting to grow into something that does that with you. And I can't wait to talk more about it. So, Arturo, if people want to keep hearing more of your deliciously low voice talking sexy things about comics, where can they find you? You can find me forging my blade in the fires of hell of Instagram and Twitter at Mr. Toybox. That's M-I-S-T. E-R-T-O-Y-B-O-X. Josh, where can people find you? You can find me speculating further about Wolverine's hog on Twitter at <laughs> Asleep at the W-E-I-L, Asleep at the Wheel, or on my website, asleepatthewheel.com. Nathan, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, sneaking Ileana Cheeseburgers, at Dazzler AOA. Jonah, where can everybody find you? You can find me delivering the rest of the Oracle of Araco sister's body to her as a present for my prophecy over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. Nico, where can everybody find you? It, is this is this my I just I just got my I just got my sword. Is this where I Hello. do I stand? Or Where's my mark? Over, Line? Where, where am I supposed? <laughs> where's my, am I supposed to? Can I? Which can somebody shine the light? For, I, I just need my spot. Oh oh, I'm supposed to do my sign off. I'm not supposed to psychically know where to stand with my sword. Got it. So. If you're looking to find out more about me, please check out Instagram and Twitter, where you can find me at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Of course, you can find all of the amazing programming on the Cage Club Network, shows like X's for Podcast, HTML, Too Fast, Too Forever, and way more over at cageclub.me. We're also going to be bringing Fast and Furious with us to the Read Pop Metaverse experience, so you're going to want to check that panel out on YouTube as well. Don't forget, if you guys are interested in what you hear, there's an incredible backlog featuring voices like the ones here and in the other segment of this episode that you might want to check out. Kyle, where can everybody find you? As always, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's E-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Fantastic. Rodders, what about you? Where can everybody find you on the old interwebs? <laughs> All right. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Hawksrod. That's H-A-U-X-R-O-D. Hawksrod. Fantastic. And Miss Comic Canary, where can everybody find you, Evelyn? Well, as you said, comic underscore canary on both Twitter and Instagram, as well as my other podcast that I run with my dad, 
Tolkien about it. Fantastic. And as somebody who's never read The Lord of the Rings themselves or seen them, please don't shoot me, I uh, I will definitely be tuning into that because something about a novice perspective on The Lord of the Rings uh, is, is something that interests me greatly. Fun fact, my girlfriend is so obsessed with Lord of the Rings, the fact that I have not seen them or read them like gives her like reason to recontextualize like our entire relationship. So... <laughs> oh, my dad is very disappointed in me that I've never read them. So that's why we're reading them together and you know Aww. what then we can we can be we can be in shame together <laughs> but, uh, as always guys thank you so much for joining us thank you for being my wonderful panel today and until we meet again next time uh this is maddie you can find me over on instagram at at the basically covetous man and just a quick couple words for those who need to hear it black lives matter queer and trans dreams matter the only bias that is ever appropriate is a bias that protects the rights and lives of others hold space for people of marginalized communities and diminished voices and until next time keep those mutant lights lit now we all say goodbye goodbye bye <laughs> <laughs> <Adios>. <laughs>